And let me share some thoughts that I pray will be of help to you as they've helped me as I've dwelled on them, dwelt on them some. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman. Why did God pick the time and the place that he did? Well, I understand why he picked the place better than I can understand why he picked the time. The place is that little 50-mile-wide land bridge between three great continents. If you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, they point to a spot that they say is the navel of the world, the center of the world, that life emanates from that spot. And in the first century world, that was really true. That was the center of the world. And here is a little 50-mile-wide land bridge that join these three huge continents. And if you were going to start a religion that you wanted to reach the whole world, you would put it right there because all of the countries of the world funneled right through that little spot called Palestine, called Israel today. I understand the time, or rather the place, but the time. Why did God pick the time that he picked? In the fullness of time. In other words, a plan has been going on, according to the Bible, from before the foundation of the world. God had a plan. And he had the patriarchs and the prophets and all of the revelation that came and all the history that uh, we enjoy in the word of God and in secular history as well. We see the hand of God at work in it all. But why did he come when he did? The fullness of time. Well, it was the fullness of time politically. Rome controlled the world. From Britain to the Nile, from the Atlantic to the Caspian Sea, from Hadrian's Wall to the Euphrates, the Roman standards flew. Rome, dominating everything and everybody. They did some wonderful things that later were facilitated by the spread of the gospel, or the gospel was facilitated by these events, they built the best roads ever made, many of them still in existence, Roman roads. Not only that, but you had the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, which meant that you could go anywhere in the world without a passport. There were no frontiers. You didn't have to go through any custom spots, just go anywhere you wanted to. So God knew that he would have free reign then, send the gospel out without hindrance politically. Also, you had a language. You see, everybody was bilingual. Everybody could speak the language of their area, their dialect, but everybody knew Greek and everybody spoke Greek. It was the universal language. The Greeks had permeated the world with their culture and so they spoke Greek. They spoke Koine Greek, two types of Greek, classical Greek, Koine Greek. Classical Greek is the Greek of uh, Homer. Uh, Koine Greek is the Greek of the marketplace. Uh, the Greek that's spoken uh, in business, street language, street talk. And that's what the New Testament is written in. It's not written in classical Greek. It's written in Koine Greek with a spattering of uh, Aramaic uh, in there. It's the language that people used every day. So you could go anywhere in the world on Roman roads. You didn't have to go through any frontiers and you didn't need a translator. So I can understand to a degree why God picked that time, but it was a terrible dictatorship. 
They control the world and they control people within it. But it was also an interesting time religiously. Uh, All of the Roman gods uh, were old and dying and uh, they had imported some oriental deities. But then the worst thing of all is that they had, uh, that Caesar had instituted Caesar worship. You're to worship Caesar. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And early Christians were, were martyred because they would not say that. They would not say Caesar is Lord. They would say Christ is Lord. And that was enough to send them to death. So it was not a friendly world religiously in that sense. Economically, it was not necessarily a friendly world. Terrible poverty. Terrible poverty. Uh, Two out of every three men, two out of every three men walking down the streets of Rome was a slave. They had high taxation because the wars that Rome had been involved in cost a lot of money. And the excesses of Herod the Great particularly had uh, caused the people to be in uh, dire need financially. And they had overpopulation. They had trouble feeding the people. So it it was not a good time. Why did God pick such a time as that? Morally, it was the pits. It was a terrible time morally. It was a terrible time of social degradation. Why did God pick such a time as that? Because God has a way of taking all things, good things, bad things, and like in that first century, like in our century, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. There is that mysterious mixture that occurs in all of life. Celebration and sorrow, sunshine and shadows, good days, bad days. But God works all things, good things, bad things. God works all things together for ultimate good. Not only was God at work using politics and economics and religion, and morals, and culture. God was not only working in and through all of those things, because God is not an absentee landlord, just leaning over the balconies of heaven, wondering what's going on here in the world. He is a part of the world in which we live. He is deeply ingrained in it because he created it and poured himself into it. But here is Caesar Augustus. And he decides it's time to have a census. And so we're told that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world was to be taxed. And so everybody had to go to their home of lineage. So here's this little family, family to be, mother and father, Mary and Joseph. She, great with child, had to go to Bethlehem. Had to go on that terrible journey of about four days on a donkey, about to deliver a baby, and got down there and they didn't have any room in the inn and you know the story. You've heard it all of your life. Where's God? Where's God in a moment like that? Caesar Augustus did not have the faintest idea that by writing that decree 
He was causing divine prophecy to be fulfilled. He had no idea that by signing that decree, he was fulfilling the word of God. When King Herod heard this from the wise man that a king was born, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people, the chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. That was written, it's in the fifth chapter of the book of Micah, an Old Testament prophet. Fifth chapter of the book of Micah, the second verse, written six to seven hundred years before that time. God working everything together for good. Utilizing a terrible dictator in a diabolical state to get this little family down there to Bethlehem so his son could be born fulfilling prophecy. Herod got word, of course, you know, about the birth of Jesus from the wise men. And he wanted to know this, where he was going to be born. And here God has already run the gamut ahead of them and prepared the way by using Caesar Augustus to fulfill prophecy. And then you know what Herod did. Herod ordered all of the baby boys two years of age and under to be killed. He did. He de detected that from the time the star was seen about how old the baby would be. And so he had all of those little baby boys killed in Bethlehem. Where in the world is God in a thing like this? What is he doing? He had an angel go warn Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, to take the baby and go to Egypt. You read it in the first, uh, excuse me, the second chapter of Matthew. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape for Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up. And took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. And so was fulfilled. But the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. I called my son. Written by the prophet Hosea, 11th chapter, first verse, six to seven hundred years earlier. Herod the Great had no idea that he was being used to fulfill purposes and the promises of God. Now let me, let me interject something very quickly. Do I believe that for one moment that God told Herod to kill those babies? Not at all. I believe that was one of the most diabolical, despicable, contemptible things ever done to the human race. And God would not have ordered such a thing as that. He would not have approved such a thing as that, but he would use such a thing as that to bring his will to fulfillment. You see, we need to be reminded of the fact that God doesn't live in a tense. He doesn't live in a 
past tense or a present tense or a future tense. Everything that's happening is history to God. Everything that's already out there to happen a year from now or two years from now is old stuff to God. He already knows. So what did he do? This magnificent creator said, well, I know that Caesar Augustus, because of my foreknowledge, I know that Caesar Augustus is going to sign that decree. So I'll set the calendar for the birth of my son so that the prophecy will be fulfilled. God is not going to allow his purposes, ultimate purposes in the world to be thwarted by a Caesar or a Herod. He knew what Herod was going to do and he held Herod accountable for that damnable deed. And I don't believe there's any hell hot enough for a man who would do such a thing as that. But he went into the hands of God as we all will for a judgment. For it is appointed unto men once to die and after that to judgment. And every one of us will have to give an account of our deeds done in the flesh. I don't believe God ordered that or ordained that. But God takes the worst that the world can throw at us and he will use it to bring something good for the glory of God and the welfare of his people. He works all things together for good to those that love the Lord, including Caesar Augustus and Herod the Great. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? We all live in the best of times and the worst of times. And all of us in varying degrees, at one time or another, have had a Caesar in our lives, or a Herod. We've been uprooted. Our lives have been fractured. We're forced into situations we would never choose. Paula spoke about it. You could speak about it. I could speak about it. We've all been forced into an Egypt of grief and isolation and loneliness. We all have. Where's God? God is right in the middle of what is taking place and he is going to, as he has from day one, work all things together for good to those that love him. We're so close to it, we can't see it. That's why we need to, as the philosopher said, listen to what the centuries say against the years. Reminded of James Russell Lowell's Marvelous poetic statement. Truth forever on the scaffold. Wrong forever on the throne. But that scaffold sways the future. And beyond the dim unknown standeth God. Within the shadow not observing it, not a spectator, standeth God 
within your shadow. Your darkness. Keeping watch above his own. God is going to save his people. You will call him Jesus, for he will save his people. It's a great big jawbreaker word called anthropomorphism. That's when you attribute uh, a, a human trait or uh, personality trait to some other object like an animal or a tree or, well, you've seen the Taco Bell commercial, <laughs> a little chihuahua. What does he say? Yo quiero Taco Bell. That's the best commercial in the world. Yo quiero Taco Bell. Well, that's an anthropomorphism. That is projecting on to an animal some human trait. Well, we, we do that with God. That helps us to understand God, to, to be able to do that. And some great poetry like Green Pastures and others have been written to help us understand not only the divinity of God, but the humanity of God. For he was both and is both. Anyway, so I'm going to use a little anthropomorphism in my imagination. I can see God one day saying... Uh, Tell Gabriel I need to talk to him. And Gabriel comes to see God. Yes, sir. Gabriel, I want you to go down to Bethlehem and there's a little 16-year-old Jewish girl down there named Mary. Little virgin, she's engaged to be married but I have a plan for her if she will accept it. And I'd like for you to go talk to her. So he goes. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Now, an engagement in Jewish life at that time was much more than an engagement as we understand it today. It had all of the attributes of marriage, including property, but no sexual relationships until after marriage. So an engagement was one that you would have to have a divorce to break the engagement. It's a very serious commitment. So she was committed to him, to Joseph. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings. You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Can you imagine that? You will be with child and give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I am a virgin, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born, to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. and She who is said to have been barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Went to Joseph and told him so he would understand. And he did. Now, would you stop and think for a moment? She didn't hesitate. She knew the consequences. She knew that if she was pregnant out of wedlock, she could be stoned to death. She knew, as Joseph knew, that they'd be the butt of many jokes. <laughs> Did you hear what Joseph said about his fiancée Mary? She is pregnant, and he says that God did it. Sure, we've heard that before, haven't we? Yeah, kind of crazy. They withstood the mystery of it all, and the sarcasm, the criticism, the suspicion, whatever you say, God, if you want to use me, be it according to your will. And it was done. Then Jesus was having lunch with his son and he said, Jesus, It's time to go. We've both known it from before time, haven't we? Yes, we've known it. Time to go. I'll be with you. Well, what do you want me to say to them? And what do you want me to do? Well, it's pretty simple. Just tell them that I love them. All of them. The religious and the irreligious, the Jew and the Gentile, the man and the woman, the sick and the well, tell all of them. I want you to pick up children and hold them so that people will pick them up and hold them and not hurt them. I want you to put your arm around lepers who are outcast and 
cleanse them and restore them to life. I want you to lift up people who've been crushed by circumstances and who are groveling in guilt. I want you to say, get up. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Tell them that I forgive them. Just tell them. And he came. And he did. Picked up little ones, hugged them, put his arm around people, touched lepers, blind eyes, twisted bodies, dead bodies. Everywhere he went, he brought life and love and peace and joy and forgiveness. And then almost his final words during the days of his earthly sojourn, impaled on a Roman cross, he cries it out so they could hear it and we could hear it and the whole world could hear it. Forgive them! All of them. Forgive them. You are forgiven because you are loved by a God of grace and a God of love. You're forgiven. Well, I got to tell you a quick story from another Christmas pageant. I told you two last Sunday, and they're wonderful. And they're so marvelous because they all involve children. Well, this was a Christmas pageant, and there was a little boy by the name of Barry. And he had, the first Christmas pageant they had in which he participated, he was an angel. And he had wings on and all that. And he backed into a candle and the wings caught on fire. And the adults had to run out there and put out the fire. And it completely disrupted uh, the Christmas pageant. And so some of the kids said, we don't want Barry in there anymore. But uh, the teachers said, well, yeah, we're going to give him another chance. And uh, so the next year they made him Herod the Great. And he was seated on his throne when the wise men came to him. And he was so excited that when he jumped up, he pulled the rug out from underneath the wise men and they all fell down, <laughs> gifts and all. So it had to stop the play again and reset the set. And they said, we do not want Barry in the, in the play anymore. Well, the teacher said, let's give him one more chance. So they made him the innkeeper. And his line was, and he practiced it over and over and did well in practice. His line was, when Mary and Joseph came to the door of the inn and knocked on it, he was to open the door and say, be gone. I have no room for the likes of you. Be gone. Well, he did well in practice. But the play came and the parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and others were there, of course. And the play was going along very well. And Mary and Joseph came to the door of the inn and they knocked on the door. And he opened the door and he stood there. He said, be gone. I have no room for the likes of you. Stood there. Mary and Joseph turned, started walking away. 
And the folks on the first two or three rows said they saw tears in his eyes. He stood there and he watched them walking away and he said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You can have my room. Isn't that wonderful? Terrific story. And they, did, they fouled up the play again, so they had to go back and redo that, you know, and get him to say the right thing. But that's all people remembered. That is all people remembered. And they said for months and months after that, people just use that as a phrase all the time. You can have my room. Do you realize that every one of us is an innkeeper? I'm an innkeeper of my heart, my mind, my life, my room. Well, I joined Barry this morning and said, you can have my room. Mary said, you can have my womb, my body, my life, my love. Will you and I do that today? It's either be gone or come in. Let him in. Invite him in to your life. And he'll work everything together for good. Now and throughout eternity. For our times are in his hand. Trust him. Maybe you'll do that this morning for the first time to accept him. Maybe you'll say, I want to be a part of a church that's endeavoring to let Jesus into the rooms of our lives. Want to be a member of this church? What do you have to do? Just say you want to be a member of this church. That's all. You may want to come in rededication, recommitment of your life. To maybe give him the key to some other rooms you may have kept locked up. And you're going to give him access to those rooms. So I want you just to bow your head and close your eyes. And our musicians are going to play. And I don't want anybody to move or stir around. And if God is speaking to you and impressing you in any way to make a decision, as in the earlier service this morning, two people made professions of faith in the Lord. Others coming for rededication. If God has spoken to you, and you're going to say with Barry, I'll give you my room my heart, my life. Just stand up and come. I'll be here at the front to meet you. Come on.